welcome to Where's My Blueprint podcast, where we talk about all things adulting, our experiences, navigating adulthood, and what we learned along the way. We invite you to join our weekly conversations while we create our own blueprints on this amazing journey and hope some of the lessons we learned can help you. Here are my co-hosts, Nay and Sunny D. Hey everybody, it's your girl Sunny D here to brighten up your day. I'm a new business owner transitioning from corporate America. And frankly, I can't trust anybody that don't like tacos. Hey friends, I'm Nay. I'm so excited to share and grow with y'all. I'm a full-time wife, full-time mommy, and part-time employee. Nutella is my love language. This is your girl, Nakai, and I am your host on Where's My Blueprint Podcast. I am so excited to have you guys here, and I love brownies and seaweed. So let's get to the episode. Hi, welcome back to Where's My Blueprint Podcast, episode 21. Happy Mental Health Month, y'all. Make sure you take time this month for your mental health because it is extremely important. But you all know, before we get started, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everybody. Once again, we thank you for joining us. This episode is sponsored by Divine Timing, your one-stop shop for all things adulting. You guys can check them out at fearforme.com. That's fear, the number four, me.com. Put in the coupon code WMB22 to save 22% on everything on the website. They have your planners, your journals, everything is digital. So you immediately get it upon purchase on any of your devices. So check them out and save some coins. Okay. So y'all all know we start every single episode with a quote. And today's quote is, I felt like I died too, and they forgot to bury me by unknown. So ladies, what do you guys think about that quote? Very dark. <laughs> Like extremely dark. I empathize with the feeling that they must have been, well, with the circumstances they must have been experiencing to have such a dark and vivid and morbid kind of thought. But yeah, it don't give me the warm and fuzzies. You know, for them to, to say, you know, they I died and they forgot to bury me. It's like, I'm having this feeling, I'm feeling this despair and there's nobody out there who is looking at me, who sees me, who's wanting to support me. So it, it is hard to hear that, but I guarantee you it's a feeling that more people than we realize have from time to time. Absolutely. And I think it's even more so like, cause I remember feeling something, maybe not exact, but I can pull emotions that could align with this quote in the, the sense that I'm not able to articulate how it is that I'm feeling and other people can't give me what it is that I need. So I feel like I'm on this island by myself. You know what I mean? So I definitely can relate to some agree with that for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I like this quote because I felt like the same. It was so deep and dark, but at the same time, we have those moments that we go through that we have to figure out how to get out. And audience, I hope y'all picked up. We have a new voice today. So (laughs) we have our mommy, my amazing, beautiful therapist on with us today. And so I do want to do a quick disclaimer before we get into the meat of the episode. So as we are talking about mental health and everything about that. So this episode has the potential to be heavy and all opinions and experiences are that of us and each host and our guests. So, hey, at the end of the day, hashtag First Amendment rights. We each have our human and entitled to our own opinions and thoughts and beliefs. So after all of that, I am going to let Miss Momi introduce herself. Thank you, ladies, for having me on today. I am excited because I like the podcast. I've had a chance to listen to you guys, so I'm excited to be a part of this today with y'all. So for those who don't know me, my name is Momi. It's actually Momi Lana, but I go by Momi. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in San Diego, and I have a private practice, coffee, tea, and therapy. I'm a big tea fan, not so much a coffee fan, but I forgive my clients when they drink coffee, okay? (laughs) So that's what I do, but who I am as a person, I am a Louisiana girl to her bones. Uh, I married me a Louisiana man, and we are college sweethearts, been together for 27 years, married 23 of those 27. And I'm just blessed that I get to walk with that man, laugh with him, partner with him, parent with him. It's it's beautiful. Uh, We have two amazing, beautiful, strong, kind Black queens for daughters, uh, Bianca and Kennedy. I just love them. Every day I'm like, oh my God, I'm so proud. And then the next day I'm even more proud. So it just, we burst at the scene. Uh, And I would be remiss if I do not mention just a big part of who I am is I'm a sister. I I have five siblings and there are two brothers in there, but I'm not going to lie. I ride hard to my sister. Don't, you don't want this sister smoke, okay? 
on top of that, my husband and I are a part of what well, we in the mental health field called the sandwich generation. So we are caretakers for both our moms. They live with us. Uh, and I love being able to do that. I love being able to be there for them because God knows they were there for us. Uh, my mom was always that, you think I ride for my sisters? Well, she rides for all of us. And my husband's mom is the same way. So I'm glad that we're at a stage in our life where we are able to do that. So that's just a little bit about who I am. I love that. And I love the ride or die for your sisters because you know me and my little one, my ride or die, even though she calls that's me right. Top, but it's okay. And I love that y'all are calling sweetheart. Oh, okay. Let me get out my feelings right now. Okay. <laughs> So uh, as you know, we are a podcast about our journey into adulthood and what that looks like. So tell us about your journey into adulthood. Okay, but I'm going to preface it by saying I know that it is not a typical journey. I I absolutely can respect how difficult that transition can be for a lot of people. Uh, It was not a difficult one for me, and I attribute that to a few different things. So my transition from teenager to adult in training, and I'll explain that, uh, to full-fledged voting adult, bill-paying adult, was kind of smooth. And I think that really is a attributed to me being a middle child. And when I say middle child, I don't mean it's one, then I'm two, and then it's three. There are six of us, and I'm five of six. So I had the ability, the privilege of seeing one through four live life and be successful in their own right. So I wasn't afraid. I, I didn't have that fear of, oh my God, can I survive on my own without my parents putting the bill for me, making decisions for me? I saw it happen. And it's such a huge age range with me and my siblings. So I was able to see them live successful adult lives for a long time before I even approached uh, adults. And so I think that really contributed to it not being this scary thing for me. But that's not to say I didn't have hiccup. And maybe hiccup might not be the right word. Maybe it's better to say I had plane changes. (laughs) And that was okay. I think the thing that helped with the plane changes was I always gave myself the ability to be flexible. Uh, So when I changed a plan, I knew why I changed it. Even if other people didn't know why I changed it, I'm a big proponent of the loudest voice in your head being your own. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't take input, but I, I always went with my gut, my instinct. And so that helped me uh, with my adulting. If I realized I was on a path that didn't feel right, I didn't have a problem at all about changing direction. So uh, that was mine, but I know it's not always as smooth for people. So I, I can respect the struggle that some go through. I was just fortunate enough that I didn't go through that struggle. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and especially recognizing that not everybody has the same path or path, you know, as far as adulting and what that transition looked like and since yours was probably smoother than others did you have like a blueprint growing up and throughout that transition and what that looked like for yourself I wouldn't say I had a blueprint per se because when I think of a blueprint I think of something more finished like it's very specific like if I looked at the blueprints for my house it'll say you know these are the dimensions and this is where the bathroom is going to be I didn't really have a blueprint but what I had I think worked for me I had a skeleton plan and I had a pretty ride or die support system. So those siblings, you know, when they were grown and gone, they weren't really gone. They were always accessible. So if I thought something might be a good fit for me, I always had them that I can kind of bounce ideas off. And that helped when you have people that you can talk to who genuinely are invested in as a person and your growth. Uh, They're not looking to try to tear you down. They're not looking to shut down everything you think, even if it's different from something they experience. Uh, So that was a part of a big part of it for me. And my skeleton plan was made up of a few different things. Like people will often look at what's going well around them. I didn't only look at the successes. Yes, I had siblings who had success. I had people outside of my family that had success and who valued me and wanted to sow into me. And that I will always be grateful for. But I also was able to look around and see what does not look successful to me. I made that a part of my skeleton plan too, because I wanted to make sure I avoided those things. I am a proponent in feeling like I don't need to reinvent the wheel. If I see you doing something a certain way and I feel a way about that, then I don't feel like, well, I'm going to try it exactly the same way and it's going to come out different. No, it's not. It's going to probably come out exactly the same. So things that didn't feel successful to me, I put that in my plan too. So did I have friends who experienced teen pregnancy? I did. Do I feel like being a teen parent makes
make sure that you're not successful? No, I think it can slow it down, but I don't think it dictates that you cannot be a successful person. I just have always been a person who didn't want to slow down. If I have a goal, I have a goal and I'm trying to get there. So that wasn't something I was into. I didn't want to be a teen mom. I didn't want to be that person who was out there partying, drinking and doing drugs because it could derail. I didn't want to give anything or anybody control over my journey. So I see that more of what I had than just a blueprint. But I think it's okay to have a skeleton plan because you can make it your own. I think when you start off with a blueprint, there's pressure that comes with that, where you feel like you have to be within those dimensions, kind of like in a house. It has to be exactly this way. But life is not cookie cutter. We should allow ourselves some flexibility, deviation from the way it was done. But the comfort of knowing you can go to people who had a plan and follow the plan for themselves and ask questions. So that's kind of what I had. And that worked for me. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of anything being referred to as a skeleton plan. And Mm -hmm. I think I really like that idea because Lord knows I'm very much like structured and I have a plan and it seems very much blueprint-ish to me. And then when things don't, when those dimensions don't add up, it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh yeah. (laughs) I don't know how to pivot from that. You know what I mean? It's difficult, at least for me. So I know that I had a specific plan growing up and I knew, you know, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And that ended up not happening. And I had had to pivot for that. So how did you get into being in an LMFT? Number one, number two, what the heck does that mean? Let's start with that one. I like that question. What the heck does that mean? Because when I first saw those initials, I said, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) So I totally get it because I didn't refer to that job as an LMFT, but it's actually referred to different things in different states. So in California, it is an LMFT and that's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And how I got into it is kind of funny. It's like that, that saying, you want to see God laugh, start making plans. I was probably the queen of comedy for him. Like he, Mm. (laughs) he laughed all day with me because being an LMFT was not the original plan. It wasn't a part of the skeleton plan. I was so focused on going to law school. I wanted to be in that family court system. I genuinely have always had a heart desire to help families and children who were considered at risk. And that, you know, it's just, it's things that I saw growing up and I felt like that was a need and I really wanted to be able to fill that need. Uh, But life happens and I ended up, like I said, I met that awesome husband of mine in college and we got married and my husband was in the military. So we moved around and after graduating with my undergraduate, I said, okay, I'm, I'm getting ready to start applying for law school, but I am a busy person. Like I need to do stuff. And so I said, while I'm waiting, I'm going to work. And I got a job as a CPS worker. Some places call them CPIs, but they're child protective investigators. And I was a front end worker. So that meant I went out And I actually investigated the cases and decided, should we remove, should we not remove? But that wasn't the only part of the job. The other part of it was the aftermath, right? So it's once you make that decision, now you have to put stuff in place. And so I thought, this is great. I'm going to be able to really put some stuff in place that's going to help help these families and they're not going to be at risk anymore. And then I got my wake up call. I was (laughs) in the room (laughs) and it just wasn't happening. I was in that room and they had other people, other community stakeholders in the room. And I started to quickly realize that my time was very limited there. And the only person was there who was there from beginning to end was that therapist. They were the ones that were in the room all the time. It didn't matter which stakeholders were changed out, that therapist was constant. And I thought, that's what I wanted to do. I thought I had to be the lawyer in court to do it, but I didn't. I needed to be the therapist in the room. And so it was an aha moment because when I went to school for it, it was like everything fell in line. I, the, my program was great. My groups were great. Like everything just felt like it clicked because it was like, all right, now I can see the, from the skeleton plan. Now the blueprint is forming for me. So that was really how I got into it. Uh, the initials LMFT stands for a licensed marriage and family therapist. But like I said, every state is different. Some states will have only what they call LPC and that's a licensed professional counselor. Uh, there's also the LCSWs and that's the licensed clinical social workers. So it's different ones, but we all pretty much do very similar things. We may have different routes we take to get there and different modalities we use when we're helping our clients. But overall, it's the focus is the same. I love that so much because I, full disclosure, have a social work degree. So I'm a certified social worker. Oh, and right. Yes, 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 yes. 
And it is a interesting way that we come to <laughs> that community. <laughs> I don't think anybody that I've spoken to, like in schooling or anything, sat down and said, I want to be a therapist. I want to be a counselor. But most of the time, we all have this innate drive yeah. and passion within us to help children and families. But since everything is so differently, and since you have a lot of experience to draw on what does mental health mean to you? How can you define that? How do you define that for yourself and your clients? So I think everybody has this general idea that mental health is primarily how people feel, right? But really and truly, it's more than that. It's how we feel. It's how we think. It's how we act. It's it's the total picture. It's our psychological well-being, our social well-being, our emotional well-being. How do we take our feelings and put them in a space appropriately? Do we have the ability to read the room and feel good and, and let our bodies do what they feel like they need to do, be of, of service the way we want to be of service. And then we have that social component. Can we formulate relationships and connections outside of our circle? Can we be at work and connect with coworkers? Can we be in school? Can we be in church? Can we just be in the community and feel that we're able to contribute in that phase without feeling like we want to crawl out of our skin? So to me, all of those things kind of make up mental health. But I think there's a big discrepancy when it comes to mental health, because I think people use these two things interchangeably and they're not. Mental health and mental illness are very different things. And I think that's important to kind of highlight, right? So we kind of talked a little bit just now about what mental health is. Mental illness is your diagnosis. You can have one without the other. I can have anxiety, but still feel like my social well-being, my emotional well-being, my psychological well-being is going well, but I can still have that diagnosis. Or I can feel like those things are not going well and I cannot have one diagnosis at all. So they're not interchangeable. And I think as a therapist, personally, I feel like we see more people struggling with mental health than mental illness. Everybody doesn't have a diagnosis and that's important to, to recognize. So I, I try to, to stress that to my clients because when they come in, they're always nervous. They don't know, all right, so do I have to have a diagnosis? No, you don't have to have a diagnosis. If you have one, we'll talk about it. And I like to do psychoeducation with them on whatever it is. But I'm always clear in helping them to normalize the fact that just going through a life transition can be stressful enough that you want to be in a space to talk to someone about it. That is so good because in today's world, mental health is so buzzworthy. But in, and I feel comfortable saying we are all women of color and we probably do the majority of our interaction with other women of color. Mm -hmm. Mental illness has that stigma that is ugly. And yep. there is the push to move past that and to kind of normalize even the mental illnesses as just something that people are working through. But then, you know, good old panorama hit. <laughs> and COVID and while we are still in what year two, three of it, how have you seen the mental health field change as a result of what we're going through. Honest to God, I think the pandemic has created an explosion of sort in the mental health field in good ways and in bad ways. So in some of the bad ways, it's exposed the things that uh, we lack, right? So we, it, speaking, since we are all women of color, you ladies probably are aware that there are certain communities, specifically communities of color, where mental health is not this thing that is talked about a lot. It's, it's not this thing that people seek out. It has changed. And I think that's one of the positive things. But one of the negative parts of that during the pandemic is when you have a person from a community of color who has decided, I think it's safe for me to go into this space, but I want to go into a space where there's representation. What's highlighted is it's hard for them to find that. You know, I recognize that I'm a unicorn in this field. They, it, we really, we make up about 1% of this field. And that's, we need more. We really need more of us. Because if we had more, I think more people of color, specifically in Black community, would feel comfortable lending themselves to a vulnerable space to get the help that they would need. So I think that's one of the things that it kind of exposed where we lack. It also exposed that we have a lack of programs out 
outside of individual therapy. We need more intensive outpatient programs. We need more access to inpatient programs. It's ridiculous for an insurance company to say, okay, you're a level 14, but we have a, a program for you, but it's in Texas and you live in California. That's ridiculous. Who's going to want to do that? Uh, that creates a whole nother level of stress. So it has exposed the need for programs like that. But I think some of the positive things, it has created dialogue. Whereas talking about mental health and mental illnesses, that used to have this huge stigma because you felt so alone. It's been on full display where we can see more than I'm not the only person struggling with not being able to hang out with friends. You know, my kids are not the only ones who struggled with not being in school, not going to soccer, not having birthday parties. There are other people having that same struggle. And so now people start to let their guard down a little bit and feel more comfortable having the conversation. And as long as we can have the conversation, we can have progress. So I think that's one of the positive things. Another thing is besides it revealing a lack of enough therapists of a certain race, uh, I think it's also made it accessible in that before when people were having these traditional brick and mortar therapy offices and you had to get off from work and go into therapy, now it's more accessible. You can literally be on your lunch break and log in because we shifted and you have more therapists offering virtual therapy. So it's made it more accessible and that's not a bad thing at all. And that makes it more comfortable for people because even if it wasn't a work thing, let's just say you're the kind of person who just feels more comfortable talking about tough topics at your house, in your PJs, with your pet right next to you. You can do that and still talk to that professional. So I think it created an explosion of sorts and it was good and it was a little bit bad, but even the bad can be turned into good because the bad revealed what was needed. Now we need to fill the need. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> um, you are dropping gems and I'm so appreciative. And so you said something earlier about how we're all with the pandemic, we're all being alone, right? Being alone yeah. together, right? And with COVID and everything that happened. So can you identify or tell us the top three mental health issues that you have seen in your practice? So for me, I have seen an increase in individuals identifying symptoms consistent with anxiety, but it's still what's very consistent still. People are coming in and they have what we call adjustment disorders, meaning they're experiencing a stressor. The difference is most people are experiencing the same stressor. The inability to go out and have that interaction or even that ability that you're inside all the time, that's too much for people. Some people are complete extroverts and they thrive on being able to get out. Uh, so that's been a stressor for them as well. So there's some commonality in that. Uh, unfortunately, a number that has absolutely increased, there has been an increase in suicidal attempts and suicidal completion. Uh, and that's unfortunate. That's always unfortunate. But if we are truthfully looking at the numbers, suicidal attempts and completion with young children already was on the rise before the pandemic. So that's an area that really needs to just be addressed. There was an article I read online, I think it might've been earlier this week, and it talked about, it was titled, uh, We Are Forgetting Our Children. And that's what it focused on. It talked about the astronomical numbers of children ages five to 10 who are now in that, that range of, trying to harm themselves, if not suicidal, at least self-harming behaviors, cutting, hair pulling, all of those things. So it, I hope what this has done, because with the pandemic and kids being at home and not in school, you had less eyes on them. You didn't have that teacher who noticed that this child looks tired every day. It doesn't seem like they're sleeping. This is a child that normally turns in all of their work and all of a sudden they're not turning in work. You didn't have that other set of eyes that was able to partner with parents and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm seeing at school. What are you seeing at home? And you just have parents trying to do all of that. But these are parents who were burnt out too. So you have all these burnt out individuals and it made it really hard for them to try to take care of each other in the manner they would normally be able to do. So for me, I've seen the increase in anxiety. I have not uh, personally had clients with the suicidal attempts or completions, but 
in this field, doing my research, doing the readings, it is absolutely prevalent. So that sparked something within me with the prevalence of those three and the way my brain works. They're so kind of closely linked together. Are you seeing a prevalence in more dual and multiple diagnoses now, or are you seeing the same amount as it was prior to the pandemic? Well, I, I think I think it's not a matter of seeing more. I think it's people feeling more vulnerable to disclose. I think that comorbidity absolutely always existed. But I think that people, when you're looking at mental illness, sometimes it's just, it's hard enough wrapping your mind around one thing. When people are sitting there having to wrap their mind around the possibility that I may be dealing with more than one mental illness, it was just a lot for them. And so they focused on specific symptoms. Uh, I think now you have people saying, I really need help. I need to be able to focus on the totality of what I'm experiencing. So I don't know if the pandemic has caused the comorbidity, but I think it absolutely created a venue for them to uh, express the comorbidity more. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question. So with everything that you said of like, some people may have like adjustment disorder mixed with depression, mixed with mixed with anxiety. And right now we are living in a time of social media of like, like Nay said earlier, mental, mental health is a buzzword. So everybody's like, take care of yourself, take care of yourself, take care of yourself. As a black woman, I'm asking, cause I'm about to get some, you know, advice. <laughs> But as a Black woman, we are labeled with this word strong and having to be a strong woman, having to be the one that, you know, bears the world on our shoulders. What advice do you have for Black women specifically to be able to process that through with dealing with an adjustment order, with dealing with anxiety, with dealing with depression and all these other things, but still having to, quote unquote, be strong, go to work, smile and code switch? Yeah. Oh, that's one. Um, I am, I'm going to say this and please know, ladies, I am not being facetious when I say it, but the advice I would give is to stop it. And here's why I say that, because the truth is you don't have to, I'm going to date myself when I say this, but Karen White had a song back in the eighties. I'm not your superwoman. It's true. I am not your superwoman. I'm not trying to be your superwoman. There are days that I legit want to lay here and cry and I'm going to do it. I'm going to respect my body. I'm going to honor what that need is. If I feel like I can carry the weight of the world, I'm going to do it. But if I feel like I need to put it down, I'm going to do that too. And guess what? It makes me no less fabulous to do any of those things. So I think it's important that we get comfortable with what we need. The truth is society has always had these roles and norms and they put you in this box. Do not let anybody put you in a box. You get to decide what's my role. What is my norm? Not what they think is your norm. You don't have to be that person who goes home and cooks. You work a full-time job. You do homework with your kids. Then you have to take kids to dance class or gymnastics or soccer practice. No, especially if you are married and you are in a partnership. It is a partnership for a reason. It is absolutely not a partnership for the sake of just being cute. No, partner up. Divvy up that work. Everybody can be strong in that household. Everybody can be strong everybody can be vulnerable. I always tell my girls because I have two girls and I am always trying to make sure that I'm giving them what they need to go out in that world and be beautiful black women who can do what they need to do. I tell them your black is beautiful. It is strong. It is vulnerable. It is everything you need it to be. And you need to get comfortable walking in that. So that's my advice to my sisters out there too. Your black can be whatever you need it to be in that moment. Did y'all hear that? <laughs> did y'all did y'all catch all of that? Miss Mommy, you are so amazing and you seem so relatable, like my favorite kind of therapist who is actually human <laughs> and speaks <laughs> to others in a human manner. So with you being so personable, so relatable. How do you set boundaries between yourself and your clients, more specifically client, like your boundaries for your clients? Um, Because I could just see them going off the deep end. So yes, how do you set boundaries between yourself and your clients? 
in your practice? I will say that boundary setting starts at the onset. It starts even before they become my client. Uh, so I do a consultation. Uh, the beauty of being in private practice is you have the opportunity to decide what's your wheelhouse. People always think that, oh, she's a, a therapist. So anything that I have going on, I can bring it over there to her. That's not true. I'm totally comfortable telling you what I'm not good at doing. So that consultation lets me decide, talk to you about what's going on so I can determine is my skill set applicable to what that person needs. But at the same time, I'm trying to gauge that personality because I'm a person just like they're a person. There are certain personalities that just don't click. So I really try to ascertain, are we clicking? And if we're clicking, then we set that appointment. If I have availability, I set that appointment. And it gives them an opportunity to decide if I'm a good fit for them. And I have no problem telling them it's okay if I'm not. I know that I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay too. I'm not going to contort myself to be that cup of tea. It's fine. I help them find somebody who might be a better fit for them. So once that's out of the way, the biggest way to set the boundaries is just through your policies, saying things up front. I'm very fortunate because I genuinely love what I do. I enjoy my clients immensely. And I am blessed because they are very respectful of those boundaries. So I don't get clients just popping up at my house. I don't get clients trying to call me on my regular phone. And I say that because some people may say, well, how did they get your number? Well, I work where I live. So I may end up on a a committee meeting with a person who ends up being a a, a client later and they have my personal number because we worked on a committee together. It is very clear up front. If you have therapy business, call me on my therapy phone. So I'm really specific about setting my boundaries in terms of this. These are my office hours. I'm in the office on these days. This is how you can reach me for emergencies. And then that's it. But other than that, I really kind of partner with my clients on, I I trust that they will respect the things I put in the space and I respect the things that they put in the space. And so far, uh, I have not had any client who has not followed and respected those boundaries. I think the hardest part for it all for me and clients is when it's time to close (laughs) Uh, because my clients don't like to leave. And I don't like them to leave, but I do a graduation ceremony with them because I um, I want them to know I'm so proud of the work they've done and that they are leaving because they're ready to leave. And, and that's fine. It's not, you know, I encourage them to call and check in and let me know, hey, this is what's going on with me right now. But I don't make them feel like, okay, well, that's, that's it. You kick rocks, the door is closed. You know, it's always open for them to come back if they need to come back. But um, I I just use my policies really to to try to set boundaries up front. Nice. I know confidentiality is so important. So without breaking HIPAA, confidentiality, all of those things, what made those boundaries so necessary? Were, um, Were there specific instances that you can share as much as or as little mm-hmm. as you can <laughs> but what preempted those boundaries and having such strict and exact boundaries honestly it i and i'm a firm believer that our experiences kind of shape how we move in in the world but honestly it wasn't um it wasn't any experiences so these policies were created and thought about long and hard before before I even got licensed. I knew once I got licensed, I wanted to open a private practice. So I started thinking early about how I wanted to be able to operate in my practice. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of me building rapport with my clients. So I tried to think about the things that could get in the way of that. So, you know, it might get in the way if a client called me at 10 o'clock at night and I picked up the phone and answered. I'm I'm kind of tired and unencumbered at that time. So it might not be <laughs> the best kind of conversation. So I tried to just think about those things early on, like what would make this relationship be seamless and feel like I wanted to be authentic without having to constantly be this rule pusher. 
So I knew that if I talked up front with them about these boundaries, that it would eliminate the need to have to do it consistently. Now, when I worked at one point, I did work with children a lot in my practice. With children, I did have to uh, review the rules a little more, but that was fine. I understood that. I'm a mom. My kids are not little like that anymore. But I remember when they were little, I was constantly having to give them gentle reminders. And so I tried to take that into therapy as well, because I'm a person who is what you see in therapy really is what you see anywhere. I'm, I just am who I am. So I tried to take my the way I was as a mom into therapy with my little ones and remembered, okay, when my child was five, I would have to give them small reminders. I'm going to make sure I give small reminders in therapy so that they can get what they need in the face. So I went into it very much client-centered beforehand. So I can honestly say none of my policies were created because someone crossed the boundary. They just were thought out before that. So I have a quick question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you created this amazing blueprint before you started your business and especially with boundaries, because, you know, that's my favorite B word. So <laughs> <laughs> my question is who tell us a little bit more about your business and who you exactly serve. OK, so when I first started my private practice, I pretty much worked with all age groups. Um, and with my kids, it was primarily a lot of like ADHD or kids who were on IEP and they needed uh, like special help with making behavioral adjustments and things like that. And so I would actually go to these IEP meetings. And to be honest, I I worked with kids for such a long time. I I genuinely thought my practice was going to primarily be children. I enjoyed that work. That was something that shifted a lot for me with the pandemic uh, because I think the kids were just done with online. They were doing school online. Everything was online. I mean, for God's sake, these kids were having virtual birthdays party. So I thought it was just too much. And I am absolutely that person that if I cannot do it all the way, I'm not going to halfway do it. I didn't feel that I was able to be in the space with them the way I was in my office. Like we couldn't sit down and talk about what was going on while, you know, using Play-Doh or, you know, like tactile things. So I stopped working with the little ones when the pandemic happened. And I really started shifting my focus, not just to adults, but I started working in that area of like that 14 and up age, uh, because I felt like there was a real need there. Uh, specifically, I one of my, I have a 14 year old and I have a college student, I have a 19 year old, and there's a real need in that age group too. And so I wanted to honor that, recognizing my own children and the things that I've had to help them through. I felt more kids would be benefit from that, that maybe other kids were experiencing that stuff too. So I do work with that group. Primarily, I see uh, adult women and couples. And couples was the um, unexpected surprise. I never thought I was going to work with couples, even though it's my license is licensed marriage and family therapist. I never thought I was going to work with couples. I ended up, <laughs> the first couple I, I had, I remember telling them, so we'll give this two months. And if it does not work, I promise you, I will help you find somebody else because I've never done this. Absolutely fell in love with couple work. I, I, it's very rewarding. I love it. Uh, so I work a lot with couples too. So um, if I'm looking at uh, the diversity in my practice, I think that's something I've been very proud of that. Yes, I have a number of clients who are African-American and I love that because I feel like they see me as an avenue to, to sit down and kind of really talk about about things that matter to them. But I've also been proud of the fact that I've had clients who are not African-American and they come in and feel just as comfortable. So I, I feel that's when I say the policies work. <laughs> People are coming in and they're getting what they need to get and they feel heard. They feel seen. And obviously I'm a military spouse. So I, I take only one insurance and that is TRICARE. And that's my way of really trying to give back to that community. I know that <laughs> I know that they they just have struggles that that civilians don't see. You know, when you throw deployments in and people giving birth while on deployment or you have a new spouse who's not used to moving away from family, they just have a different set of dynamics and I wanted to be able to help with that. So that's that's coffee, tea, and therapy in a nutshell. I love the way all of that sounds. <laughs> I really <laughs> do. But to kind of pivot to a different arena, mm-hmm. 
So as a former therapist to a current therapist, I know those days can get long. (laughs) Emotionally, physically, it can be some long days hearing trauma. And like we discussed on the podcast before, trauma is anything that causes you kind of discomfort. So if you're having a bad day, that theoretically is trauma. It's not the big, you know, gut punching instances that we often think about. So since your job is to be inundated with all of this for the mm-hmm. whole work day, what does your decompression from work look like? <laughs> so really, inter- I am fortunate because I have, even though I'm working from home, I literally have a whole home office, like a whole separate section of my home. And that helps. That That's a part of my decompression because when I am done, I leave the iPad in here. I leave the computer in here. I leave the phone in here and I close the door and all of a sudden I am transported because I genuinely, I love being a mom. I love being a wife. So when I walk out of this office, I'm fully inundated in what happened at school. What you have for lunch? Who you hung out with? Talking to my husband about things like just connecting with my family. I enjoy being able to go to soccer practice and watch my kids out there do their thing. And it is so relaxing for me. I I really, I stick to my work hours and that helps me so much. It really does help me with my decompression. And on days that are particularly tough where that's not enough because my job is not like another job where you can go and talk to your spouse about, I cannot believe they did this today. I can't do that. <laughs> I kind of have to keep it in here. So when I'm having those particularly tough days, what I do is something called guided imagery. And I just try to focus on a place that feels common for me. So I'm in San Diego and beaches are beautiful and very peaceful out here. So I always imagine myself being on the beach and putting my day, everything I had from that day in a suitcase, in a basket of a hot air balloon. And I put it in a suitcase because that's still my way of protecting it a little bit. I'm just saying I can't keep it. I want it to be protected, but I can't be the protector right now. So I'm going to put it in this lock case. I'm going to put it in this hot air balloon and I'm going to let it hover. And I can pull it down and get it the next day if I need to access it. But I don't take it out of this office with me. Did I start off like that? No, I didn't because I am absolutely that person who is all in and I genuinely connect. I'm not one of those therapists sit there and I'm waiting to give you the answer. No, I'm, I'm all in. When they're talking, I'm there. I'm listening. And so because of that, I know that I can start to really get pulled into that space with them. And that can be a blessing and a curse. I think that's the thing that makes my clients feel connected to me. But that's also the thing that makes me have to work really hard to make sure that when I do close that door, that I am not mommy the therapist. I am mommy the mom. I am the wife. I am the daughter. I'm just mommy at that time. So I do little things like that to just just help me. I am a part of a therapist group and it's kind of awesome because we're all black therapists and (laughs) and so that's our way we can talk to each other we can do consultations with each other and so that is helpful when I have a case that is particularly tough for me not saying that I'm not able to do the stuff but when it's hard when the when it's hard hearing the stuff and processing it I'm able to kind of share out and get if not feedback at the bare minimum support from from that group and I, I do trust their instincts and their judgment so that helps me a lot too. Can I just say this entire conversation I am loving and I need it to be like a bazillion hours longer, honestly, truly. Good, I'm glad. So I know one of the things from like the industry that I'm in and being able to have those really emotionally draining days because you care and you're invested and you give, you know, so much. Having that time, like you just said, to to decompress is like required for just your overall like functioning as a human being, you know what I mean? Like you definitely need to. And I know I've had my, you know, different um, things that I like to do for, for that same reason. What does, what is one like self-care practice that you have that is an absolute non-negotiable? I have a few. I'm not going to kid you. I have a few self-care Whole list. So for me in my job, I tell my clients up front that I am going to allocate one mental health day a month for myself. So that is despite my work week being four days, I will still take one mental health day a month. And I have a couple of clients who will say, but moment, they have a holiday this month. I say, and I'm taking that day too. 
So I, <laughs> I take my time when I need to take my time. Uh, I make sure I, I go on vacation. Uh, I recently started back with a workout routine. And if I look at my schedule and I know this is going to be a long day, I'll save my workout for the end of the day. I go in and I get rid of all of that energy. And it feels so good to have that, that good sweat. I zone out. I put my music on and I'm gone. I'm like in that space. So that helps me a lot. And another thing that's a self-care for me, and that's whether it's work, whether it's my personal life, I love the word no. I am not that person who feels like, oh my God, if I say no, I'm going to miss out. If I miss it, I miss it. It just wasn't meant for me and I'm okay with that. So I have no problem saying no, because I think saying no makes room for me to say yes when it matters. So no is my friend and she gives me a lot of self-care time. So So I know some of our audience will try to steal my therapist and I'm going to feel some type of way, (laughs) but I am going to ask, are you taking any new clients? (laughs) Right now, I actually am not because I'm full, so I (laughs) don't seem so excited about it. I have to not take new clients right now because I am full. I try not to pack the caseload because I want to give quality time to my clients. If I have, I'm one person. I always tell people in private practice, it's great because you get to pick a lot of things, but you also wear a lot of hats. I'm not just a therapist. So I'm the biller. I'm the secretary. I have to shop for the office. I clean the office, all, all of those things. So because I have those things that don't relate to therapy that I have to, I try not to pack the schedule so that I can really really give quality time to my clients, be able to do that and still be able to do what I want to do in my personal life. too. So right now, no new clients. I was, you know, excited because those are boundaries that you're setting for yourself. Yes. (laughs) In my selfish way. (laughs) Okay. Since you are not taking new clients, which full disclosure, I am thoroughly sad about, um, (laughs) (laughs) How can our audience, aka me, know when you do become open and are accepting new clients? So I am in a few uh, therapist directories and they have the ability for us to go in and make ourselves available uh, for my, for people interested in seeing me as a therapist and they have TRICARE. TRICARE has a nice new little feature that lets us go in to say, hey, we're accepting new clients. So on the various platforms and really and truly, if people give me a call, I have no problem letting them know if I'm taking new clients. If I'm not taking new clients, but I know I have clients who are graduating in the next three weeks, I will say, hey, I have a client graduating and this is their time slot. Would you like that time slot? And I'll get you all scheduled at that time. So as Sunny D has said in her episode of um, anxiously adulting, of her having anxiety and not realizing it was anxiety over this whole entire time, like when she was younger, she thought it was just her being overwhelmed and Sunny D, please chime in at any time. So how can you, what can you suggest for, especially I feel like in our community, we don't think that anxiety is something that's real. We're just like, especially because, you know, black families like, girl, sit down, go pray about it. Girl, ain't nothing wrong with you. Just go to sleep. Go drink some ginger ale. And it's like, um, that's not what's wrong with Ginger ale, lay down. Really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, or my favorite, girl, you just need to be more organized. Quit worrying about problems that ain't there. You worrying about tomorrow. You need to focus on mm-hmm. today. Yeah. That one. <laughs> that but one. how do you, what advice would you give an adult that's um, having that conflict? I think the first thing about any diagnosis, whether it's anxiety or anything else, is to you decide how you want to normalize it for yourself, because that takes the sting away from it, first and foremost. When you start to normalize it where it's not a problem, it's a part of your process at that time. So I think that always helps. When it comes to anxiety, I agree with what you ladies are saying. I think that anxiety is that one diagnosis that's like this unseen thing. And so to people, it's it doesn't really exist. It's like this made up thing. It's not made up. It really happens. And I feel like anxiety is a part of every single person's life. What I say is it's just sometimes it doesn't rise to that occasion where they feel like their fight or flight response system is being activated constantly. And so that's why they feel like, oh, she's just a little worried about something. But anxiety is more than just being a little worried. So knowing that it's present for everybody, like I say, it's in the car. 
car, just don't let it be in the driver's seat. You stay ahead of it and you do that by acknowledging that you know it's there. So the first thing is acknowledging it, normalizing it. And the second thing for you to do is really decide how is it impacting me because it looks so different for everybody. For some people, they will genuinely start having physiological effects of their anxiety where they'll have pains, stomach aches, headaches, different things like that. But it really is representing the anxiety. The reason the physiological effects come in is because you're trying to make it real. You're trying to make it this tangible thing so it's easier to explain to people because nobody understands this, this feeling you have, this feeling of just feeling very uneasy, very unsettled, uncertain about something. That is harder to explain. But if you tell somebody, my stomach hurts, I, I just have a headache, they get that. They instantly get that. So really deciding how your anxiety is presenting itself in your life, what part of your life is being most impacted, and go from there. If you try to focus, like let's say anxiety is being present in your relationship. Okay, great. Now we have some meat and potatoes where we can talk about exactly what's happening in your relationship that you feel the anxiety is contributing to. Is it making you distrustful in that space? Is it making you unable to be present in that space? So really trying to identify how it's presenting itself in your life. And you can do therapy for that part of it because that's easier to wrangle in. Does that make sense to you? Like the presentation of it is what you can focus on because other than that, it feels like this big abstract thing and it's kind of hard roping in what part of it you want to focus on. So before you get help, decide on your own, what part do I really need to focus on right now so that I can start to feel that I'm being more effective, and I'm being more intentional in my space. Because then once you start working on that, I guarantee you're able to connect other dots. You're able to apply those tools to the other areas that you may have felt a little anxious about, a little uncertain about. So think of it in that terms, like break it into increments, kind of compartmentalize the anxiety a little. That's very, very helpful. Definitely so. Because I know for me, like Nakai said, I've never really known that it was anxiety. And I don't have necessarily a diagnosis. I've just taken enough psychology classes. I figured it out. But, but, uh, it's definitely helpful because it's very difficult. Like it's very challenging for me to articulate what that feels like or what that, like what I'm going through and it being able to translate itself into or transform itself into a physiological thing. That makes a lot of sense because the amount of times that I've gotten strep throat over my lifetime, I've gotten to the point where now I can diagnose that and I just go to the doctor because I need amoxicillin. I already know what the deal is. Look at my tonsils. I already know what it is. Don't need to take the test. It's $100. No, thank you. I can tell you what it is right now because I've had it enough times. And I definitely realized, okay, when I get strapped is when I'm like really stressed or overwhelmed and stuff. And that's when I started putting things together that it formulates itself physically because that I can define. And that makes, I mean, that's a big old light bulb for me. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And you know, another thing with anxiety is sometimes we have to sit down and really dissect things that we're feeling, is it ours or is it a byproduct of someone else's anxiety? Are we in that space with this person who is feeling this way, putting this in this place, and we're just kind of like taking that on? So really being able to decide if what you're working on belongs to you anyway. Mm, write that down. <laughs> okay, that was that was heavy. And I love it. It was like, oh, you got some therapy, girl. You're welcome. <laughs> Listen, thank you. <laughs> But the last question we have for you is one of my favorites, because I think just because you know me, so you'll get when I ask the question. (laughs) Um, What do you want to be remembered for or your legacy that you want to leave? Ooh, now that one is loaded. And I, I do like that. I think more than anything, I want people to remember me as someone who was kind and someone who was intentional, not just about what I want for myself, but how I approached other people, how being intentional in helping and being genuine with them. So I want to be remembered uh, for that. And I mean, I, as far as my legacy, I genuinely feel that my girls contribute to that a lot. What I've been able to impart in them as their mom, that lives on. So I've really tried my best to teach them how to appropriately advocate for themselves, how to be kind people without being people who were being taken advantage of, being able to just be genuine 
and embracing who they are. And so I feel that if they can continue being that way and they pass that on, that's the legacy. Like it always makes me feel very proud as a mom when another person comes up and says, not that, oh my gosh, your daughter is amazing. She helped my child with this math test. But when they say your daughter is so kind, my child was having a horrible day and she just kind of talked to her and sat down and had lunch with her. That makes me feel proud because because that means that I'm raising conscious people to go out into this world. We need more people like that in the communities and stuff. So I think for me, that's what I want to be remembered for. And, and that's the legacy I, I want. You're bringing tears to my eyes. Because <laughs> that's so beautiful of just like raising kind humans. And that's mm-hmm. like you said, that's what we need in today's time. Like we need kind yeah. humans and we don't have enough of them. So no. I love that as a legacy. <laughs> Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was such an amazing, beautiful gem dropping interview. Um, but before we move on, I want you to let everyone know where to find you. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, you ladies can find me. My uh, website is coffee, tea and therapy. And that's C-O-F-F-E-E-T-E-A-N-D-T-H-E-R-E-P. APY.com. My cell phone number for my business is 619-253-3494. And I also have an IG account. Full disclosure, I'm not as active. I try to post um, from time to time just things that I feel would be beneficial to people who might not be in therapy, but who can benefit from it. But it is coffee, tea, and therapy. Uh, So that's where people can find me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So since you said you listen to the podcast, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we have what's called moments of melanation so Mm -hmm. we are going to transition into moments of melanation moments of melanation moments of melanation is where we highlight a black person doing their thing and today we are highlighting we are highlighting Ms. Taraji P. Henson and the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. So you guys, I found out about Taraji, um, her foundation, I want to say right before the pandemic, because she was doing something and it was like, text this number for mental health support. And I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't know this was an interest of hers. But her foundation was founded in 2018 and it's named in honor of her father, Boris Lawrence. Henson, who suffered mental health challenges without resources and support. So this foundation, its goal is to help Black individuals to own their history, heritage, and collective wounds in empowering, empathetic, and transformative ways. Sounds amazing, right? So they encourage mental wellness, raise awareness of the stigma and use of stigmatizing language when referring to mental illness, provide mental health resources and support, offer scholarships to Black students who seek a career in the mental health They extend mental health services to young people in underserved schools, communities, combats recidivism, and supports reentry for returning citizens. One-stop shop of awesomeness, it seems. The thing that really made me impressed was their mental wellness support program, which is free for registered participants and offers up to five free mental health therapy sessions by a licensed, culturally competent clinician in their network. Enrollment is available on a first-come, first-served basis until all the funds are exhausted. So ladies, what y'all think about all this goodness? I I love that. Uh, When Taraji first started that organization, I remember giving a plug to it because I was doing um, the school district in in this area was putting on a, a fair for they were really trying to target their black and brown students with career opportunities. And they reached out to me about being a panelist and doing a a class for uh, being a a Black mental health professional. And so that was right around the time that she started that organization. And I remember telling the kids about it. First of all, she's such a a presence, right? So they knew exactly who she was. And in addition to her organization being as awesome as it is, like one of the big draws for me was the fact that she said, we need more 
Black therapists. And so we're going to do scholarships. And so that's what I made sure to give to those kids. But more than that, I think what Taraji has done in the Black community for mental health is amazing because what she's done was she's lent her voice and her story. Representation matters. Being able to have that sense of community in anything matters. And that's what she did. She came in and made it real. She didn't come in and just say, I feel like this is a need. No, she said, I know this is a need because this is what happened with my family. When I was going through my struggles, when my son was going through his struggles and we tried to seek help, this was what we were met with and it wasn't what we needed. And so I wanted to create something. My dad needed help. He was in the war and this is what he needed and nobody gave it to him. So she said, I'm going to create this need that wasn't available when my family needed it. And I feel like that was so powerful and important for her to put her story out there because then it started to grab people's attention. Other than that, it would have been an amazing organization, but it would have been just another organization out there. She made it applicable to everybody who had ever lost a family member, watched a family member suffer through mental illness, dealt with mental illness on a personal level. She made it real. So I think that's always going to be a part of her legacy. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Taraji has a beautiful story. And I don't know if anyone has read her book, but like her story is is incredible. And I'm so glad she is able to formulate this foundation and really give um, a platform to the importance of mental health, especially in the black and brown community. Because, you know, like we said earlier, if it ain't Oprah and Jesus, we don't really talk about it. And giving giving, you know, an actual space for us to have real conversations and really start addressing some things and make it accessible, I think is incredible. And I'm so excited that she continues to get more and more, um, recognition for the work that she's doing when it comes to mental health and living in this country looking the way that we do it's incredibly important work yes I agree I think um I love that she said it's first come first serve but also like until the funds are exhausted like she's going to fund she's going to invest she's going to do what she can to ensure everybody who wants the help meaning that you're actively seeking this help you have access as we we know in our communities, we, if you have access, that means you're in a different zip code. We talked about the zip code in one episode of like, oh, if your zip code says this, you have access to so many things, but having access to a mental health professional that looks like you, that understands when I go to work, Viola Davis, Davis, when I go to work, I'm putting on a whole entire person. But when I go home, I can take that person off and be myself. Well, why don't we have rooms or spaces that we should be ourselves in naturally? Like that code switching that you have to do is tiring at the end of the day. So I am happy that she is, she created this platform, but not just that, but specifically for her dad. Like she created a legacy for her father, which I'm just in awe about because you guys know I'm all about legacy. What are you leaving behind? So absolutely. And to wrap it kind of put a bow on it. I love that these are culturally competent clinicians because like, you know, Miss Mommy said, all clinicians are not created equally. You take your life practices, you take your life experiences with you when you step through that door and try to partner with another person. So it's important that you have a therapist who is familiar with the Black experience or is familiar with how society and the world interacts with us. I'm not saying that they have to be Black to be able to know those things, but it really helps when you have somebody who is a what did we pass within our group chat not an ally but an accomplishment in all that you have to offer kudos to Raji and her foundation absolutely yes kudos um so what that tells us is when you have a therapist like me that helps you realize your self-worth self-love and self-belief uh don't hate um you you're able to function more go out in the day and conquer everything and from that we're gonna have a word from our sponsor 
Hey, beautifuls, this message is brought to you by The Grass is Greener on the Other Side, where we help women who have anger, sadness, and shame from being cheated on learn how to heal and take their power back so they can regain confidence, restore their peace, and attract the life of their dreams. We can be found on IG at Brianna underscore Latrice. That's spelled B-R-I-A-I-N-A underscore L-A-T-R-I-C-E. And for all of the Where's My Blueprint podcast listeners, we're offering free 15-minute discovery calls. So if you're ready to regain and restore that self-love, self-worth, and self-belief back in yourself, shoot me a DM for a free discovery call today. Because my motto is, honey, leave that cheater and find your peace. If you're interested in joining my new course, Rejection is Redirection, using your past as a reference, not a residence, you can email me at affairrecoverycoach at gmail.com or you can shoot me a DM at Brianna underscore Latrice. See you on the call. Okay, so with that, you all know we end every single episode with an affirmation. Today's affirmation, we have the honor of having Miss Moni, Miss Momi doing our affirmation today. I have two things. Okay, so this is not as much as an affirmation, but this is something that I tell myself every day. I always tell myself that one day, someday is my today. So if I am saying I want to do this, I don't say, all right, I'm going to do this. I say, I'm going to do this today. So I make sure that I create the action from the intention. So that's something I just tell myself every day. And then I have a favorite quote that I genuinely live by. I, I pass it on. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a tagline. It's a signature line in my emails. And it's by Miss Maya Angelou because she's amazing and everything. I love everything she came up with. But she has this quote that I feel is very powerful and applicable across the board to people. And it says, we delight in the beauty of the butterfly, but we rarely admit the changes it's gone through to get to the beauty. So it just reminds me when I'm in that place where I'm not feeling finished and beautiful that that's okay because that's a part of my journey too. It's okay if I'm in my chrysalis moment because I'm going to get to my beautiful butterfly moment. So it's very encouraging for me. So I I do genuinely gravitate to that quote. That was beautiful. (laughs) That was so beautiful. So thank you so much for that quote. That was beautiful. And I love that because I do feel like we are all butterflies. And so (laughs) we want to thank our audience for tuning in and listening. And again, thank you for your time. Everybody, as you know, you can follow us on all uh, platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Um, You can check out our blog at whereismyblueprintpod.com where you can find all of Miss Momi's information too. And with that, we want to say thank you again. And we are over and out. Bye. Bye, you guys. That was so good. Thanks for letting me be a part of it today. It was fun. Y'all are awesome. Thank you. You're awesome.